Welcome to Mosaic, a podcast about theology and theologizing in Singapore, Asia, and beyond. Brought to you by Singapore Bible College. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the podcast from Singapore Bible College. I am Jackie Huang. With this episode, Justin Lee and I will be talking to our guests, Dr. David Chow and Dr. Easton Law of Princeton Seminary. Dr. David Chow is the director of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Seminary. His research focuses on Asian American theology, the use of Christian doctrine for liberation, and the convergence and divergence of Protestant and Catholic dogmatics, and the theology of Karl Barth. Dr. Easton Law is the assistant director of the academic programs at the Overseas Ministries Center at Princeton. His research focuses on lived theology, public life, and the religious pluralism in the Sinophone world. Needless to say, both of them are scholars who have very fascinating research interests. But the thing I most appreciate about both of them is their commitment to make academia accessible and relatable to the church. Justin and I are very excited to have them on our podcast with Justin's interest in Asian and Asian American theology and my interest in Asian Christianity and migration in the field of world Christianity. I think we're going to have a really engaging conversation today. Yeah, welcome to everyone who's listening and very, very warm welcome to both Drs. David and Easton. Uh, just a quick note, I am a subscriber and a listener to the podcast that David runs out of Princeton's the Center for Asian American Christianity. So I'm a very frequent listener and I appreciate all that they do. And as well with Easton, um, we are very happy to have you on and we're really thankful for this time to have this conversation. Thank you for those kind words of introduction, Jackie and Justin. It's great meeting you all both today and I look forward to the conversation. Likewise, I'm really excited to be here and really excited to connect sort of the type of work that me and David are doing here in the Asian American setting with perhaps issues and questions that are arising in the Singaporean or other contexts in Asia. Yeah, David and Easton, we're really excited to have you join us today. To help our listeners get to know you a little bit better, can we ask you a kind of a fun question? We like to do this with our guests. So for many Asians and Asian Americans, food is kind of a way that we feel connected to our culture. Just to start off, if you could just tell us what's your favorite Asian food and why. Easton, you want to go first? Sure. It's very hard to pick a favorite, favorite Asian food. But I would say that in my experience, you know, so much of taste and food is associated with memory and family right? So my grandmother is from Hubei province. And so growing up, she used to cook these dishes that were just dishes to me. Like these types of Chinese dishes that for me were just dishes. And then as I got older, I realized what region of China they were from, things of that sort. And so those particular dishes always bring a sense of home to me. And that's really a strong association with those foods. But I would say my favorite, because I don't eat it all the time, and I have a very distinct memory of it, is Cantonese double fried noodles, mm. uh, when they fry the noodles to a crisp, and it's like really crunchy, and then they pour the sauce over it, and then it kind of soaks in. I have that maybe once, twice a year. And whenever I do, it's just like this treat. I remember the first time I had it was on a road trip with my family to Toronto. And I don't know why, but that's when I remember having it for the first time was in a Toronto Chinatown versus any other Chinatown in the United States. And it, ever since, it's been sort of a favorite treat in terms of foods. Oh, uh, we should just narrate our biographies through food. I, this could be <laughs> a lot of fun because you've provoked so many thoughts. My dad was born in Henan province in China, and my mom is from Zhejiang province. I was born in the U.S. and my wife is Korean. So there's the Korean Chinese dilemma. <laughs> Sometimes I just have to have kimchi 
kimchi jjigae. There's a lot of great Korean food, especially in Northern Jersey. But I would say some of my go-to dishes and hearing Easton triggers some really happy memories with my mom and her cooking. I would say when we go visit my wife's folks in LA, my wife loves Chinese food. So we really hit the 626, the San Gabriel Valley. And typically it would be dim sum. I love all forms of dim sum and especially xiaolongbao. So mm. I'm a little bit of a xiaolongbao snob. So I'm going to have to check out every place I go. Like in uh, Edison, they just opened up Ugly Dumpling. Their xiaolongbao is not bad. Din tai feng, I like din tai feng. It's pretty dependable in most places. <laughs> and then related, I would say, is gao, so rice cake. Mm -hmm. Like my mom used to make the rice cake with shredded pork. And I found one place in Princeton that serves it. Uh, Shanghai bun. Shanghai and it's, bun, yeah. yeah, it's not bad. And because typically you don't find that at Panda Express, you don't find that in the strip mall or the food court at a mall in the US. So that's kind of a really specialized dish that automatically brings me back to my childhood. Yeah. So those things kind of come up to my mind. There's something else too, but that's good enough for now. Yeah. If you talk anymore, we're going to get hungry. <laughs> the one thing I'll add before we move on is, have you had Korean Chinese food? Because there are restaurants that specialize okay. in Korean so style So this Chinese is the foods. debate. Yeah, sorry. To, <laughs> my, my wife and I talk about this all the time because she's Korean and I'm Chinese. So jajangmyeon. When she says jajangmyeon. It's a different thing than It's what we a do. little bit different than the kind that I'm used to. And so I have my bias, of course, of which is the better jajangmyeon. But she loves jajangmyeon. <laughs> but then when I taste the Korean version, I'm like, this is a little different. And then the um, sweet and sour pork. I forget what it's called. Uh, it's called tangsuyuk. Yes. Yeah, tangsuyuk. Yeah. Yeah. There are some Korean restaurants where that dish is superior to any Chinese restaurant that I've had. <laughs> that, and I prefer that's, the Korean version of... That's a brave thing to admit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, the other dish is ramen. So I really like hand-pulled noodles. And yes, when they then they do that thing. And um, I just remember having it in different parts of China, the beef noodle soup. And I must say, whenever I watch the food travel YouTube networks, I think it's the hawker stalls in uh, Singapore that I, I'm always like, I have to go there and try it. So this question has provoked many feelings. Yeah, well, come on by. Singapore, we welcome you. You, you can stay with us if you want. That's right. And <laughs> Singapore has how many in Typhoon now? I feel like it's like upwards in the 20s or wow. something there like that. There are other that. options too. There's a lot of better options actually. Well, I'm glad that this is a fun question for us and I'm definitely feeling hungry. And now that we've talked about food for the stomach, maybe we can move into food for thought kind of um, topics. <laughs> So the reason we want to bring David and Eastern into this conversation is just, you know, we saw on the Princeton Seminary's website that there was a recent announcement about a research project on trans-Pacific dimensions of Asian American faith that the two of you are working on. So that really is fascinating to me because I think a lot of times Asian American Christianity, like we think of America as the context, but the fact that you guys are thinking about this trans-Pacific dimension. So maybe if you can just tell us a little bit about this project, what's the aim, the scope of the project, and even like, why is this important? And if I could add to this as well, what is special about your guys' methodology, given that your backgrounds are quite different in terms of your research approaches and your interests, how do they come together and how do your differing backgrounds complement each other in the research that you're trying to do? Easton, you start. There's so much here. David's very gracious. He really should start because this project was very much his idea. David and I have a really synergistic 
relationship when I first arrived at Princeton Seminary about two years ago to serve at the Overseas Ministry Study Center. I remember talking to David saying, you know, I am Asian American, I am Chinese American, so I care about those things. But most of my research is actually about Christianity in China. And that actually excited David quite a bit, even though his focus is generally on Asian American theology in the American context. So just our relationship and our research backgrounds created this interest in what are the links between the two? And how do we thicken our understanding of how do things that happen in Asia influence Asian American churches? How do things that happen in the United States influence Asian churches? And that's only gotten thicker over the past two to three years, I think, as we've conducted this research. So David proposed a project to submit a grant proposal to the Louisville Institute to really look at first generation Asian Americans. So the first generation that come to the States, the migrant journey, because this is the generation that lives in both worlds. They have a thick upbringing of culture and memory and formation in their countries of origin, but then they bring that to the United States. And whether they become Christian in the US or they were already Christian in Asia, there's a whole laundry list of negotiations that have to take place within the first generation heart and mind and soul between these two places as they figure out their faith. So we really wanted to investigate, well, how does that happen? Especially with all these different sort of social political issues happening in both places as COVID emerged, as anti-Asian AIDS emerged. These were all things that were on our minds when we started this project. I'll begin with kind of two observations. I like the way Jackie set up the question that when the phrase Asian American Christian or Asian American theology comes up, Typically, we focus on the U.S. domestic context. And what Easton and I are saying, and maybe this is why I so value Tom Hastings' leadership of the OMSC and now Sujin Chung's leadership of the OMSC, and why OMSC is such a vibrant and vital conversation partner for the CAAC, the Center for Asian American Christianity, which I direct, is because I really see Asian American Christianity as a subset within world Christian discourse. Mm -hmm. In other words, if world Christianity is interested in what the spirit of Christ is doing across space and time across the world, and if Asians are migrating to the U.S. or to North America, then that migration of Asians to the U.S. is part of what God is doing across the world, right? So which puts Asian American Christianity as a diasporic community within mm -hmm. the Asian Christian conversation, yeah. Christianity in Asia conversation. So this sets up migration as the movement of people groups across space and time as a vital component, as a vital structure, and perhaps even an analytical entry point, mm -hmm. kind of like, how do we begin to think about not just that specific group of people, Asian Christians, Christians in the Asian diaspora, but what does this say about Christianity more broadly? Mm. To me, that's really the question is, what are we saying about Christianity when we focus on migration? So one, Christianity is a really translatable religion. So this is invoking some of the work of La Manzana, who's now passed, and the significance of the translatability of the gospel for all people groups across space and time. So that's, that to me is very, very interesting about the translatability of the saving message of the Christian faith. But back to what I wanted to say, my two sort of entry points here is I am specifically situating Asian American theology and Asian American Christianity in a trans-Pacific context because the U.S. domestic context is too narrow a constraint. Mm -hmm. It's too narrow a conceptual framework for imagining what Asian American Christianity is. And let me just give you two examples. So some people might be thinking, well, what is this phrase Asian American? Is there Asian American food? Is there Asian American language? Is there Asian American culture? We are more familiar with just Chinese or Chinese American. 
or Japanese or Japanese American or Korean and Korean American. These are more near at hand social categories of description and identity. And so this is where in the U.S. context, Asian American is a racial category because we have different racial groups in the U.S. So that's one thing. Another way to look at it is Asian American as a racial category does not easily fit the black-white racial binary, which typically dominates the racial discourse in U.S. domestic racial politics. Moreover, and this is kind of the second comment here, is Christianity, all right? So when we say Christian, we take that to be distinct from other religious groups like Jewish or Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist. But because America was founded by pilgrims way back when from Europe, the Christianity discourse in the U.S. often is heavily influenced by Anglo-European genealogies or histories or patterns of thought even. And so this is where we take certain theological binaries, either you're Protestant or Catholic, either you're evangelical or mainline, and we take these conceptual frameworks from this Anglo-European genealogy as often determining our analysis of Asian American Christianity. I want to say both to the racial binaries as well as the theological binaries that a trans-Pacific migration story contests those assumptions, encourages us to imagine otherwise. This is where I think the world Christianity discourse, which does not automatically presuppose Anglo-European binary constructions, is like new wineskin. It offers a different conceptuality, a different imagination. Some might even say a post-colonial or decolonial imagination that I find extremely fruitful and helpful. So I'll just kind of say that, but there's a lot more. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, both Easton and David. I, I think definitely the two of you unpack so many things. I mean, these are really complex matters, issues of identity, issues of how faith engages our identity, our imagination of where we come from, where does the faith come from, and how do we conceptualize who owns our faith or who owns the narrative in that sense. And I think in Asia, most of our listeners are in Asia for SBC's podcast. And we know that in Asia, there is still an imagination of that Christianity is from the West. And, you know, a lot of times we need to say, no, no, no. I mean, there are probably more people going to church in Asia than like, I don't know, pick a country, China, than like, say, the UK at any given day or Sunday. But these are conceptions that we need to change. And I, I like how you mentioned that a lot of times there's an Anglo-European genealogy. It's not just in America. I mean, mm. in Asia, too, we're wrestling with that. And so mm. you definitely brought up a lot of interesting concepts. For me in particular, I do appreciate that sense of, as David has mentioned, framing Asian-American Christianity within that world Christianity context. I think it's easy in Asian-American context to get caught up in that sort of American bubble that is a bit, you know, colonial in the way that it views the world, but to view Asian American Christianity as a dialogue between differing things and to see it as maybe even multiple subsets. So to think of it in different categories at the same time is actually a very interesting and helpful thing to think about, at least for someone like me, who is the opposite of what you're talking about, who grew up in the West, but is now living in Asia and is now having to sort of rethink my own categories. I think that's a very mm. helpful thing for me as well, and maybe can be helpful for our listeners. If I can maybe then follow up with one quick question that I was hinting at earlier. So given that, David, you're a more classically trained theologian who is doing Asian American stuff, and Easton, who is a scholar, 
scholar of world Christianity that does more on the social scientific side of things. How does your guys' uh, work then come together in how you guys are doing this project? So how do you guys work together in that way? Because you're quite different. Well, honestly, I don't think this project would be possible if we are the same. And that's what has made this project a gift in so many ways for me. Like you said, I've been trained in sort of practical theology in the context of world Christianity and in particular qualitative research and theology. So that predisposes me to want to listen carefully, to look at grounded voices and experiences via methods of different types of interviews, participant observation, focus groups, these sorts. And so for me, this project about Asian American Christianity and its trans-Pacific qualities really necessitates hearing the stories of first-generation Asian American Christians and really letting them speak on their own terms, letting them narrate their own histories. So we frame this as a project in oral history. But once you have all this data, and Jackie's very familiar with this, once you collect all this data, it is an ocean of data to swim through. It's easy to pull sociological themes because then you're tying those to realities in society, in politics and economics, but it can be harder to tie those themes to theological categories. And so I have, you know, rudimentary training in systematic theology going through an MDiv program and things of that sort. But I don't work with theological categories with the precision or processes that David has trained. So I often marvel at his ability to look at the data and see something very different than what I would see. Or if our conclusions overlap, we see different sides of the coin. And that's proven to be incredibly beneficial. So, for example, one thing that I've noticed in my own study and then looking at the data, and I think David can perhaps exploit what he's seen on the other side, is what it means to become Asian American for these first generation Asian American Christians. Because most of them come without a conception of Asian America. They come with a conception of being Chinese, of being Korean. When they get there, they see Japanese and Koreans, South Asians, Indians, and we have nothing in common, right? right but as right. we have done these interviews, and we've particularly first-generation Asian-Americans with children who are Asian-American, like myself or, you know, like Justin, there is this sense of realizing, well, no, Asian-America is a thing. And I am part of this community in some way, right? And so often, for many, that also goes hand in hand with their church life, actually. And becoming Christian when they came to the United States, there's lots of studies about how Asian American churches are these migrant transition points, whether a churches provide a space for that. So these are all sociological dimensions at play, right? But then there's a theological layer to that. And I can articulate very thin theological sort of uh, hypotheses, but then David is able to take that and think about the long history of sort of doctrinal development and rework these things in ways that are incredibly enlightening for me. And so, David, I don't know if you have any response to talking about these themes that we've been working with in the research. The phrase that Easton and I like to use as describing our shared adventure in theological conversation is lived theology, lived theology, which brings together traditional systematic and doctrinal theology with the empirical social sciences, especially the methods of ethnography and oral history interview. I want to even advance the claim further. I want to say all theology is lived theology. We can never divorce the propositional content of doctrinal claims from ecclesial communities. I think of George Lindbeck's work of who started post-liberalism. He talked about doctrine as the grammar rules for cultural linguistic communities. What I want to do is specify those cultural linguistic communities in ethnic and racial terms, especially in the U.S. context. So 
the methodology is really crucial. I would say even that my interest in Asian American theology has driven me to the kinds of empirical methods that Easton is an expert in. And there's many reasons for this. One of it is simply that in the way that Asian American theology has been done in the U.S., we often don't see Asian American churches reading the scholarship of Asian American theologians. And so there's been this unfortunate, I don't know, talking past one another between the Asian American Theological Guild and Asian American church life. And what an ethnographic or oral historical methodology does is it links the two necessarily. That's a move that I want to make. On my earlier claim just now that all theology is a form of lived theology, you know, I'm thinking about Christianity in Europe over the last 500 years since the Protestant Reformation. I had this really fascinating conversation, and I want to give a shout out to my colleague, Alyssa Lair Evans, who's an expert on Protestantism. She's at Göttingen University. And I was talking to her about Lutheranism. And um, if we think about 1517, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the Wittenberg Door Church, what was he doing? He was doing a form of contextual theology for the German-speaking people. Luther translated the Latin Vulgate Bible into the German language, the Luther Bible. He advocated that the church Sunday liturgy be in the German language rather than in the Latin of the Catholic Mass so that German people in the pews could understand in their own tongue what the worship service was. He articulated the priesthood of all believers so that there could be self-determination of the German church for German people. And so if we think about Lutheranism, not as this abstract body of propositional content encapsulated in the formula of Concord, that book that we have that encapsulates Lutheran doctrine, but as a living, breathing faith that emerged from the social conditions of the German people in the 16th century, then we get a picture that, oh, theology has always operated as a living, breathing thing. I think Christendom and kind of the institutionalizing effects of Christendom has ossified our understanding of Christian theology as somehow these abstract, disembodied kinds of beliefs, right? But what ethnography and lived theology that Easton and I are interested in does is it makes explicit that theology always imbricates, circulates within ecclesial communities that have rich material histories. And Asian American theology just makes that explicit. It just names it as such, as Asian American. But this, this kind of social practical theory of Christian doctrine that I'm also working on and teaching in makes that material social embodiment explicit. Even with what David just shared related to what I shared before, it gives a more robust picture to what we're trying to do, right? Because what he described as happening within the Lutheran church to create a certain German Christianity at that time, through this type of empirical research we're doing with Asian American communities, with a focus on first generation at the moment, but really trying to expand over time, is we're trying to observe the same sort of social realities happening right now. And what is this doing for the Asian American church in terms of identity, in terms of faith? And what we're trying to, to track live some of these things that, you know, historically have happened whenever Christianity changes within a community. And you add that dimension of migration between Asia and the United States, you're getting a very complex type of faith that 
that on the one hand is trying to address life, everyday life in the United States, becoming Asian American, so to speak, but also is trying to deal with that memory of Asia and that sense of belonging to China, to Korea. And you'll see in Korean American churches and Chinese American churches that they are trying to use their faith to address both places, sometimes one more than the other. You know, especially within the first generation, which is why we find it so sociologically and theologically sort of enriching to engage these types of conversations and reflection. And I'm I'm also always captivated that as I study a very particularly embodied form of the Christian faith within the Asian diaspora, it also helps me to think about, well, what is Christianity then? Given the living faith of first-generation Koreans, of fourth-generation Japanese in the U.S., given their living faith, given perhaps even patterns that are recognizably Christian across these different ethnic groups, what does this say about Jesus Christ, who is the same now and forevermore? That this same Jesus can be worshipped and proclaimed across so many varied people groups, not just varied across space, but varied historically across time. And so this is where the Trinitarian character of the Christian faith just emerged. It just slaps me in the face. It's like, oh, this is the work of the Holy Spirit, right? There's something about there's one body of Christ. This is the Catholicity of the church. Uh, there's one Jesus Christ. But then you have all these communities across space and time worshiping this one Jesus Christ as Lord. And that requires a doctrine of the Holy Spirit that works in conjunction. And I just think about my old professor. He's a British theologian, J.I. Packer. He wrote a book on keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. And he basically analogized the Holy Spirit as having the function of shining a light on Jesus. And so there are kind of different roles in the Trinitarian Godhead. And the role of the Spirit is to illuminate Christ from particular locations. And I just find this fascinating that my study of particular, like through ethnography and oral history and social scientific description of the differences within the Catholic body of Christ, it helps me to understand that Catholicity in all of its variety. Yeah, I just, just want to say amen to all of that. I think Jackie and I are both people who are fully, fully resonant with what you're saying. And we are the types of people who are interested in the same kinds of things. And the funny thing is that we do have this parallel where I'm the theologian and Jackie is the, the world Christianity person. We're not doing any projects together, but we are both resonating in similar ways. And for me as well, like my interest in say Asian Christianity is coming from a very similar approach, but I do find that there is a great deal lacking in terms of study that's being done at a level that is really affecting people on the ground. And that in this part of the world, there does tend to be a general lack of awareness of who we are and how we came to be in the way that I think we all need more of. Mm -hmm. And is something that I think you guys are doing that really does serve the church in a really practical and a very, very intentional way. So I'm very thankful for this kind of work and I'm a big supporter of it. So well, you, yeah, you can yeah. be a part of it, Justin. Um, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> you've, got, you've got a research agenda and we encourage you to journey with us. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. But thank you for both of you, um, David and Easton, for, for just helping us to see why this project is important and kind of even how you bring in the relationship between kind of theological traditions that we really have received from even as early as the first century to today. And then how do we integrate that into, David, I like your use of the word live theology. Like how is theology still a relevant 
way of thinking about our issues today and really just how we can not just see that it's like this faith that we have, and maybe we want to keep to certain kind of doctrinal orthodoxy, but we want to have it to be relevant to, in, in Eastern, you brought in the context, the places that people come from, the here and there, transnational, am I thinking about issues across national boundaries? And David, I, I felt like what you were saying about Christ, well, I was like, this is so cool. I mean, to think about Jesus across history, which is time and space, the context is that we are, and how much more than the lived theology, the ethnography brings into that. And I think Eastern, you had alluded to some of your initial findings. If I may just dive into that a little bit deeper, because, you know, this is the kind of stuff that Eastern and I get really excited. <laughs> like, what did you find? What are people saying? Because we have imaginations and assumptions of what people are thinking. But then like when you actually talk to them, you're like, oh, you think like that. And these are really always very fascinating things. And that definitely sheds light then on what is lived theology for the people in everyday reality. So if I may, Eastern, you mentioned some thing about first generations and thinking about I'm Chinese and you're Japanese and you're Indian and whatever. And the second generations are a little bit different. And if you can just talk a little bit more about that, I think for our listeners, maybe that would be a fascinating thing because coming from Asia, like, yeah, of course, you know, I remember one of our earlier episodes, Justin, we had talked about how Jean was, who's our co-host for our podcast. She said, Asian. Like, I didn't know I was Asian until I went to the UK. Like, she just always thought of herself as Singaporean. And so these are real identities, you know, issues. And so I don't know, um, Easton, if you can lend some insight into that. Sure. I remember very early on, and I was, as I was engaging more literature in Asian American studies and Asian American Christianity, which don't always overlap, which is problematic, we're starting to get more overlap when you look at Asian American studies in and of itself, is this idea that David had alluded to that Asian America is a racialized category. It is a category that has emerged by necessity because of the social structure and social reality of the United States. And so a Chinese person immigrates to the United States, if they're not aware of how these social realities work, then they don't see any practical use in that identity. It doesn't make any sense for them to be Asian. But like you had said, going to the UK, suddenly, oh, this category of Asian, and, some, and it has to do with numbers of being a minority. But ultimately, I'd like to tell people that Asian American can't be construed as a cultural identity. Not really. It can't be construed as an ethnic identity. Obviously, there are many ethnicities. It's primarily a social political category. It's a way to engage with the realities of life in the United States. And so for second gen Asian Americans, which you know, I am one, David here, Justin, you know, Jackie, you're 1.5, I believe, because you were born in Taiwan. That's right. Yeah. We're raised in this racialized world. So we find a lot of credibility in that category right off the top. For first generation, it really depends on how engaged they get with American society. Mm -hmm. The more engaged they are with the realities of American life, the more they're, I feel like, ready to embrace this term of Asian American. And especially, like I said, when they see it in their children's lives mm -hmm. and they try to connect with that, that there are unique challenges that are faced by Asian Americans. And a way to deal with that is actually to come together despite different ethnicities, despite different cultural and historical, that they have to come together to deal with that. You know, I was speaking with somebody in Taiwan, I think, during the, the summit, and they were like, 
it's really just a numbers game. Mm. You know, like if we want to affect change, we have to work together. This is from a first generation Asian American, Christian Chinese American gentleman. He was like, there's just no way that the Chinese Americans would get anything done in America without connecting with others. And there was a very practical, that's because he got engaged in the American system, right? And so there is a real sense of, I think, becoming Asian American. And then the flip side is becoming Christian, mm. right? What does it mean to be a Christian and have sort of these different identities inform what Christianity means, right? So I've, we've, Jackie, you and I were speaking with somebody at the summit as well, and they were dealing with uniquely American issues about education. That's right. If you recall this conversation. Yes. About education in the United States and Christianity's response to that. And guess what? His activism in that, he's bringing that to Asian contexts and saying, well, how does Christian education need to work in Taiwan or in China? Mm -hmm. Right. But that's coming out of a, a U.S. context. So the way that our social experiences happen, it's trans-Pacific. It goes both ways these days. Right. Whether it's an American, Asian-American issue starting to become well, we're going to bring that to Asia or Asian experiences bringing that to the Asian-American church. Uh, that's the thing that I think I have the most fun with is seeing all the different ways that being Asian-American affects the United States and Asia, you know, in, in different ways. And that's one of the, there's just multiple way findings, um, themes that we're seeing emerge. If I could jump in as well. So if we're interested in studying diasporic communities of Christian faith, and we take migration as an incredibly important mechanism and kind of an epistemological entry point into the study of that diasporic Christianity, then what we have in Asian American Christianity is a very interesting laboratory experiment. Here's the experiment. So what is unique about the Asian American racial identity is we had this thing called 1882 Chinese Exclusion Law. So basically from 1882 onward, the formal policy of the U.S. federal government was to exclude those coming from China under this Immigration Exclusion Act. And basically, if you look Chinese, and it, there was specification for other countries after 1882, but it effectively excluded Asians coming from Asia because they were viewed as foreigners, barbarians, even heathen. Their women were viewed as prostitutes. They were segregated in Asian slums called like Chinatowns because they were viewed as opium smoking, disease and filth ridden people. All right. So you've got that going on. It goes on for 80 years. It's only until the civil rights movement coupled with the Third World Liberation Front in the 60s of U.S. politics, when uh, Lyndon B. Johnson in 1965 puts into law the Hart Seller Act otherwise known as the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, which substantially repeals Chinese exclusion. So I'm born in 72, after the 65 Act. My parents come to the U.S. in 66, after the 65 Act. So there's kind of the reality of Asian demographics in the flow of migrants from Asia to the U.S. is radically altered by the 1965 Act. So there's a pre-1965 and a post-1965 Asian America. Mm -hmm. And Jane Hong's talk from the April 2023 conference that Easton and I organized basically describes how there's two very significant realities post-1965. 1965 demographically alters the face of U.S. society where the migration flow is less and less from Europe and more and more from places like Africa, Latin America, and Asia. Now, here's the second reality. The Christian church happens to become a very socially receptive and positive place for new immigrants to learn a new culture, a language, to get help getting a driver's license, navigating the medical system. The church becomes oftentimes a social services gathering place. 
place, whether for Mexican or Asian immigrants. And so you have the Christian church growing by leaps and bounds post-1965 immigration, such that when we talk about the changing face of U.S. society by 2050, the U.S. society will become minority white. This by extension means that the churches in U.S. society will also become minority white, right? So these are all really, really important demographic shifts within U.S. society and the U.S. church. So here's how this pushes our understanding of diasporic Christianity. What I am finding in the kind of research is there are important religious distinctions between first generation migrants, second generation migrants, third generation migrants and their faith. So I'm second gen. I was born in the U.S. I have a teenage high school son. His outlook on the Christian faith and I project in 10 to 20 years when that generation becomes church leaders, the kind of faith of their own will be very distinguishable from the faith of my own, from the faith of their own of the first generation. So we can begin using these categories of generational distinction, what I would even call formations of consciousness, because those recent immigrants will have a different formation of consciousness. It's not racialized. The second gen, such as Easton and I, we will have a racialized formation of consciousness through the assimilation process. And by extension, the third generation. To me, this is the most interesting part about how Christianity and Christian faith operates within distinguishable formations of consciousness given the structure of migration and the countervailing pressures of assimilation. So one can just track language use. So to me, the language use grounds this empirically. So what happens when immigrants from Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, China, they don't speak English. They're worshiping in Cantonese, Taiwanese, Korean in their first-gen churches. That is going to be a very empirically significant embodiment of the Christian faith. But they have kids. Their kids go to public school. Their kids are either bilingual or at least learn English. So this naturally means they will want to worship in the English language. Well, what happens when the first generation church doesn't have the resources to provide that English language worship? Either that first gen church will have to develop those resources if they want their children who are English worshipers to worship with them, or those children will leave the faith or go elsewhere to worship in English. So by tracking the use of language, you can then begin to see all the different constraints and determinations that are going on, which helps explain Prima Curian's work about second generation Indian Christians going to mega churches, evangelical white churches. We can talk about what the Chinese Heritage Church Collaborative is doing and why many second generation English speaking ministries within the Chinese church remain within the Chinese church. So there are all different push and pull factors. But I guess what I'm saying is once you accept migration as a formative structure for understanding diasporic Christian faith, you have a different set of questions regarding formations of consciousness the role of Christianity, as opposed to maintaining fidelity to the Reformed confessions for Swiss, Scottish, Presbyterians, as opposed to conformity to the Book of Concord if you're Lutheran. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like 
when you privilege an Anglo-European formation of consciousness, you're going to get an Anglo-European flavor of Christianity. And I would put the evangelical mainline distinction as part of that formation of consciousness. But when you privilege migration, and I'm looking at the Asian migration to the U.S., your set of theological questions are going to be shifted to what the migration structure is privileging, which is issues of language formation, identity formation. And then to kind of put the fine point on it, in my interview with Jessica Chen Fang that will be released soon, and she's a plenary speaker for my mental health conference, we talk about migratory loss as a form of trauma, right? So if first-generation Asians in the U.S. migrate and experience the loss of identity, family, language, cultural norms in the adjustment period to the U.S. from a place like Taiwan, then the Christian faith is a response to that migratory loss. The message of hope, the message of comfort, the message of forgiveness, the message of all of the Christian distinctives are then flavored by the soil of migratory loss. Again, these are different kinds of questions that Asian American Christians will be asking from their Anglo-European counterparts. So this is what I mean by the Asian American case is a distinct laboratory given the kind of racialization history in the U.S. and how it sets up very distinct generational religious differences because of migration. Absolutely. And, and I'll just add very quickly that the thing with lived theology is it is a give and take between digging deep and listening carefully to grounded realities and then moving back into theological thinking and reflection, right? And one of the things that, building on what David said, when you look at Asian American Christianity as a multi-generational migratory reality and you sit in those sociological, psychological experiences like migratory loss, when you really do that well, sort of the lived dimension, you come back to theology with a completely different set of questions like what David has said. And you realize that there's a growing body of literature on theology of migration right now that does this exact sort of work. I did my dissertation training with Peter Fan at Georgetown, and he's spent quite a bit of time as of late on theology of migration, talking about God as migration, right? The people of God as migration. And then you go back to scripture as evangelicals, we often turn to scripture to ground things. But, you know, when we have an inherited sense of Anglo heritage and we come to scripture, we assert things. But if you live in the Asian migratory experience and you come back to scripture, you're going to see the entire arc of the Hebrew Bible as a migration story with all of the same traits that David just talked about from migratory loss, even within one family in the book of Genesis to issues of liberation from, you know, an exodus. How many Asian migrants left their country either because of persecution or purely to seek better economic opportunities, right? Suddenly you find the Asian American story within scripture, you know, the migratory story within scripture as this larger arc. And Peter Fan will go so far as to argue that without migration, there is no church. The church itself, the nature of the ecclesia is a, as a migratory body. Right. And when the church stops migrating, it loses something of what the spirit and what God has been doing. And that you actually see this arc throughout scripture, even into the New Testament with the way that the church grows. Right. And if you see this within distinct people groups, whether it's the Jewish people group, whether it's Jewish people in the New Testament trying to negotiate their cultural identity with Gentiles and Romans and whatnot, you suddenly see a lot of biblical voices that speak to the Asian American condition. But how many Asian American churches turn to scripture to address those issues? 
instead of turning to it with more of an Anglo sort of sense, well, let's look for the concepts or the, the you know, but the scripture is full of resources for dealing with all of these things. And yet, for some reason, Asian American churches, in my experience, do not turn to scripture with this particular lens, right? So all this to say lived theology brings you into the lived, but then it takes you back into the theological with a whole new, and you see a whole new set of things that I think are really important for the church to embrace and work with. It's just very, very fascinating stuff. One thing that comes to mind for me is being here in a situation like Singapore, the majority of people who live in a place like Singapore are not originally from Singapore, but can trace their roots back within a few generations quite easily. And given that Chinese are the majority here and we have Chinese from various Chinese backgrounds and churches that are actually struggling in this part of the world with a similar issue of language division by generation. So, for example, in, in a situation like Singapore, you have the older generation, like the grandparents generation, who might still be speaking their dialects like Hokkien or Teochew and still have maybe the remnants of a worship service in some of these churches. And then you have some of the older generation who either do speak Mandarin and have Mandarin or are very English educated and are doing English. And you have an even younger generation who are more English educated and are pushing back even further, although they can't speak, say, Mandarin at home. So you have another interesting set of layers in a situation like here or, or say like in Malaysia, where in the Chinese pockets in the Christian churches in Malaysia, there is a bit more of that keeping of those Chinese roots in that sort of diaspora context. But it's quite interesting how if we apply some of these categories on parts of Asia where we do see these migration as a primary thing, diaspora communities as a primary thing, there's so much fruitful work that can be done in better understanding the communities and the lived theology dynamics that are shaping them that would simply just help everyone in these contexts maybe know ourselves a little bit better. I mean, this is not my world, but it's the world that's right around me, given that a school like SBC, most of our faculty and many of our students are coming from this kind of a background. So I really appreciate you guys using this language of test case because mm. it could provide people here with tools and with ideas to kind of turn back and examine the context here. I, I want to jump into what Justin is saying about the Singaporean church context. I imagine any number of parallel situations with churches in Singapore where you have parents and you have kids. And let's say there's a language distinction or difference. And so the parents then worry if they want their kids to retain their Christian identity and faith, how do you do that when they leave the house, right? So they come of age, they become an adult at 18 or 21, they're on their own and you can't force them to remain at church. So they have to want to come to church. I think this is the big question for the next 10 to 20 years. How do Christian parents and their kids negotiate their Christian identity and church affiliation, all right? When there are so many competing interesting good things on Sunday morning to do outside of the church. I want to draw attention to two crucial issues that I think will work for the Singaporean context as it does for the U.S. context. And that first is, I am more and more convinced that Asian church life mirrors Asian family life. This is a no-brainer. I don't think anyone's going to disagree with this. But if that is the case, think about what that sets up. Whatever unresolved pains, traumas, communication, problems in the family then get mirrored, analogized in the church, <laughs> right? So, and I think the mental health issue, like trauma especially, like the lack of self-understanding, the lack of emotional transparency, the lack of acknowledging wounds and hurts in the family life, when that gets transmitted to church life, what do you think the kids are going to do? They're going to want to flee a toxic institution because it just reminds them of home. 
So this is where the mental health aspect and Asian culture is not good with mental health. Who wants to claim trauma or weakness or be vulnerable and trans? No, Asian culture does not want any of that. You go to church to show off your wealth <laughs> and your strength and how good an upstanding citizen you are, right? You want to be role models. But what I am saying is until the church, the Asian culture within churches honestly acknowledges not only their strengths, but also their weaknesses, Gen Z has zero tolerance for fakeness. If that's one thing I'm aware of, I think that is the case. And this kind of hypocrisy is just kind of like associated oftentimes with institutionalized religion. And so I've been invoking Taylor Swift a lot the last six months. And I think I'll bring in the Eras tour here. Okay. So young people love Taylor Swift. Why? What can the church learn from Taylor and the Eras tour where tickets are like thousands of dollars, you know, tens upon thousands of people gather? Well, as I studied the Taylor Swift concert on YouTube, because I haven't gone, Swifties, as the fans of Taylor Swift are known, are rabid fans because Taylor talks to them acknowledges their feelings. Taylor Swift is a phenomenal storyteller and is very transparent with both the good and the bad of life. And her stories often acknowledge what her generation is going through. Moreover, when you show up at her conference, when she plays acoustic guitar, it's like a Christian church worship service. Everyone knows the lyrics. There's a sing and response with the audience. Everyone's dancing in unison, singing in unison. It is a spiritual experience of authentic emotions. And I think this is what appeals to Gen Z today is this kind of authenticity, the narration of our experiences. And this is what the church is competing against when it comes to the next generation. So I don't know. I'm, I'm fascinated by Taylor Swift and kind of the effect, the billions of dollars her tour is generating and what it says about our cultural moment today. That's fascinating. David, I appreciate that you brought up this intergenerational issue. There's another podcast that we recently did and released before yours, uh, Intergenerational Dynamics. And in Singapore, that is the issue. So there are people who are studying using qualitative research to figure out kind of what they think about one another and kind of offering ministry tools to help churches dialogue, you know, in terms of wanting to be more intergenerational. But you, what you have introduced is a kind of a theologizing conceptual framework that helps helps us to think about this, not only at a ministerial level, but also at a theological level, like how do we understand our faith? And I really appreciate that. So I want to give both David and Easton you final words. You want to talk about your project. We can talk about food if you want to go back to food um, before we wrap up this conversation. Well, thank you very much for giving me and David the space to share a little bit about our research and what we're thinking through. And we're glad to hear that it resonates with communities and churches and Singapore as well. I think one thing I take away from this project is that Asian churches all over the world, whether in Asia and North America, in Europe, interestingly, again, in Asia itself, are dealing with these transgenerational and transnational issues, right? And churches need a theological response to these. They can't just ignore them or else they're going to get some of the issues that David has made plain earlier. I guess I just want to end with an interesting personal note that I think flavors our time a certain way uh, since we talked about food and family as we started. Um, I had a very interesting experience 
when I went to Taiwan a few weeks ago, both for the summit as well as to speak at a few seminaries. And I texted my dad and I said, oh, I'm going to Taiwan and I'll be sharing at these seminaries and I'm going to try to be doing it in Chinese, speaking Chinese at these Taiwanese seminaries. And my dad's response was, uh, he's a man of few words. And then we all know how Asian parents can be sometimes. But my dad texted back very quickly. That's great. I'm very proud of you, you know. And then this was like a, a few hours later, I didn't continue the conversation. He, he, he added another text, which was, you know, I've been praying for something like this ever since you were young. And there was an interesting generational moment. I didn't dive a little bit deeper into that because I've had conversations with him like this in the past. You know, it has a lot to do with my name and my father's wishes for me in particular. I think when I was born and raised in the States, my dad was terrified that I would care. I could care less about China or Taiwan, that I would be like a second gen Chinese, Asian American that just was just completely completely immersed and embedded in these states. I would forget the language. All these things were on his mind. And when I told him, not only am I going to Taiwan, but I will be speaking at a seminary and I'm going to do it in Chinese, right? For him, there was something of an answer to prayer there and that he doesn't talk about very regularly, right? And so there's something about this multi-generational healing trauma, but what migration does to each generation and each move that is always resonant, that's always underneath the surface. And I think if churches really face that head on, I think we're going to see really powerful work of the spirit in some ways, but it's up to pastors and leaders of the church to say, we're going to go there. We're going to talk about these issues theologically, pastorally. We're not just going to pretend that it's not an issue. And that's what I would love to leave all your listeners and challenge to myself as well and David and our work. As a Presbyterian Asian Christian, I've been reflecting a lot upon John Calvin's opening sentence in the Institutes of Christian Religion, where John Calvin defines wisdom as knowledge of God and knowledge of self, double knowledge. And I am more and more convinced that our knowledge of self needs to include our knowledge of our social history and ethnic identity, not just for individualized knowledge, but for our faithful gospel witness and our discipleship as followers of Jesus. I think that without this broader kind of ethnic and social self-understanding, we won't be as effective witnesses to the goodness and truth of Jesus Christ. And so I'm so grateful for podcasts like this, conversation partners such as yourself. I'm grateful for Princeton Seminary for giving me the opportunity to direct a research center on Asian American Christianity because these kind of institutional spaces were very rare before, but they signal a kind of evolution in Christian self-understanding that is not solely dependent upon Anglo-European formations of Christian identity. So thank you, Justin and Jackie, for hosting us. May your tribe increase. Thank you guys so much. One quick note before we wrap up. My Korean name is Dong Jun, which in Chinese is Dong Jun. So Easton's name is Easton, and my name is also East. And I think that there's a funny, interesting, a bit of dual prophetic fulfillment of sorts with names that's kind of taking place in this conversation as you speak. So there's a lot of resonance and synergy going on here. So uh, once again, thank you guys so much for your time. Thank you for all of your insights. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this podcast episode. We will see you in the next episode. See you then. This has been Mosaic, a podcast by Singapore Bible College. Special thanks to Hilary Lim and Micah Singapore for giving us permission to use their music for our show. We would love to hear any feedback, suggestions, or comments that you might have, especially for future episodes. 
so feel free to contact us through our website at sbc.edu.sg. You can check out the website to discover more about our degree programs, events, and publications. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, leave a rating, or tell a friend. Thanks for listening.